Welcome to the Naturally Nourished Podcast that delivers cutting-edge food as medicine solutions for optimal health. Allie Miller is a nutrition expert sought up by the media and America's top medical institutes for her revolutionary functional medicine interventions. From disease treatment to prevention, every episode will empower you with ways to put yourself back in control of your health. Please note, the topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu. Welcome to episode 196 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we will be covering Becky's second trimester, including the ups and downs, body changes during pregnancy, opting out of the oral glucose tolerance test, and choosing natural childbirth. Oh, and for those who don't already know, we'll also do the official podcast gender reveal. Yes, it is hard to believe that I'm actually wrapping up second trimester right now, and we're just a couple of months away from meeting baby, which is exciting and also terrifying because I feel like this trimester just like sped up like crazy. Um, so back in 186, 10 episodes ago, we covered my first trimester, um, talked a lot about symptoms, especially morning sickness and headaches. We Thank talked, God that has yes, passed. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. Um, supplement and diet changes, nutrients have focused during pregnancy. So definitely for those of you who are pregnant mamas or who are, you know, planning to become pregnant at some point, go back and listen if you haven't already, because we really lay out in that episode, just a lot of the foundational elements for a healthy pregnancy, no matter what trimester you're in. Absolutely. And always everyone is unique in their process. So we'll provide some, you know, specific to Becky, her experience to assign human experience to everything in second trimester. And then we'll also, of course, cover some general topics. We talked a lot about the stress response in utero and whatnot as we've just been you know, going on walks during all of the changes in the climate in this world. Uh, so we'll cover a little bit on that today as well and kind of connecting the anti-anxiety diet to your pregnancy. Totally. But we have a couple archived episodes for you. So starting with episode 21, which is my first trimester, episode 25, which is my second trimester, and episode 27, which was my third trimester. See, we were a lot less frequent of recorders. This was (laughs) prior to Becky's day. And you could see it was like almost every four, every two. So it must have done an overhaul. But uh, all three of my trimesters are also documented by podcast episodes. And then we did an episode on keto and pregnancy at episode 134. And then again, Becky's first trimester was 186. And somewhere in there, we also did a breastfeeding podcast. That was somewhere in the the 40s or 50s, I believe, uh, earlier on with uh, you joining Becky, from my recollection. And then we did a postpartum nutrition one as well. Yeah. And we'll hit those topics again, too. We've got that planned for you guys just because it's been so long. I'm sure there's some shifts and changes and, you know, new discoveries that I am yet to have. So yes. So before we get into all of the burning questions that our listeners want to hear, I am going to take a moment to talk about Wild Foods, which is our opening sponsor for today's episode. Wild Foods is a company that puts quality, sustainability, and health first in all of their products. 
They have everything from coffee to turmeric to medicinal mushrooms, and every single product is painstakingly sourced from small farms around the globe. They believe, like us, that food is medicine, and they've partnered with us to give you guys an exclusive discount. So if you use the code AllieMillerRD at checkout, you will get 12% off of your order. I've talked to you guys about the various teas that I've enjoyed playing with in my diet as a great boost for antioxidant. I've been doing a lot of them infused as cold beverages midday now that the Texas sun is starting to pick up in the triple digits. Um, so from that Thai G tea to even the Twilight Black tea, they have number system for their teas and really fun botanical flavors. They also have a number system for their mushroom blends. So this is my go-to source for medicinal mushrooms. I have incorporated things like turkey tail and lion's manes uh, as great ways to work as nootropics to enhance cognitive function and also support as adaptogenic property in the body to have resilience for stress and enhance immune function. I've been using their wild matcha as my go-to source for matcha as a beverage, as well as incorporated into recipes, many of which I feature in the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook. So if you're looking for pantry staples from coffee to tea to mushrooms and more, make sure that you go on over to wildfoods.co, that's .co, not .com, and put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout where you will save 12% off of your order and also let them know by voting with your dollar that you heard about them from the Naturally Nourished podcast. Yes, I just put in an order with them actually last week and it just came with my truffle salt for, you know, popcorn and <laughs> other use. Um, and I've started incorporating more matcha. I kind of forgot about that during my first trimester and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, last keto class we were both sipping on. I had a green smoothie and you had your matcha with like cold, it was a cold shake version of matcha right with like matcha, coconut milk i've been doing homemade cashew milk oh. um, i forgot about that like from my <laughs> vegan, vegan days, days vegan juice bar yep. days and yeah. i use their um wild vanilla powder in it which is like so much better than vanilla extract because it doesn't have that alcohol taste and um a couple scoops of collagen because i'm really trying to ramp up my collagen right now Yes, all the connective tissue. Yes. Keep it elasticized, <laughs> girlfriend. Okay, so let's do this. Um, now that we are in the second trimester, you said you're rounding it out. So you are 26 weeks today. And when this airs, I guess you'll be, goodness, 29 weeks yeah. or something. <laughs> yep, so exactly 26 as of Today, baby is supposedly the size of an acorn squash, although all those vegetable <laughs> analogies, I'm like, mm, a grapefruit is actually bigger than a pomegranate. I'm a little confused here, but it's all good. Um, but yeah, week 26 exactly as of today. So second trimester officially, or third trimester, excuse me, officially starts at week 28, but we're close enough and I feel like plenty has happened since our last episode on this topic. Um, so first and foremost, as Ali said, I'm, I'm really happy to report that like starting around week 14 or so, I had a full turnaround with the morning sickness, nausea and vomiting that I was experiencing from first trimester. And my energy started to come back like right kind of around that 14 to 16 transition when we were moving to Austin. So I've been enjoying um, more sustained energy and just more time to like get things done because I'm not napping all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that it's that timestamp of as we get to, we talked about 
in the episode on first trimester, the influence of increased insulin and how that should impact carbohydrate intake because those low blood sugars can be a driver of the nausea beyond progesterone deficiency. And, you know, by week 12, placenta is fully formed. So now it's taking over hormone production and starting to transfer nutrients to the baby in a different way. We see that most major organs and systems have been developed in this second trimester. And now we're really into, in the beginning really of the second trimester, and now we're really through this period of time getting into the growth um, length and weight for baby. And um, the stabilization of hormones, I think, are important, as well as like the hemodynamic blood pressure changes. And so happy, Becky, to see that because I don't think you experienced morning sickness. I think you just experienced non discriminatory any time of the day. Oh, yeah, it wasn't sickness. morning. It was worse, <laughs> honestly, in the evenings, a lot of times after dinner, and just. <laughs> At all times. (laughs) So I am so happy that you hit the honeymoon phase before your big move Uh and relocation. And also, I mean, that was really the heat of the stress with the pandemic. Um, So I'm happy that you got through the the storm of of the hormone fluctuations first. Yeah, totally. And, And once I started feeling better, I really started to get intentional again about diet and incorporation of more nutrient dense foods. So, you know, eating fish again, although it's still like not my favorite thing. I'm trying for at least once a week and I'm just doing four capsules of our EPA DHA to um, make up the difference. I just bought some salmon roast. I'm hoping that will go over a little bit better, but I'm just not like loving fish still. That's a choline, um, choline superfood yep, for yep, sure. Exactly. Um, I've been doing liver pate a little bit more frequently. I've been making it actually with that wild foods, truffle salt and truffle oil in there. Um, so a little bit of a riff on the recipe that we have on the blog, uh, making smoothies again, which I wasn't into <laughs> at all really either. I was just doing it like by force in the first trimester, um, and just getting more intentional about like packing in the nutrient dense foods everything I know that I actually need for baby's growth and development, um, and balancing out carbs a lot more. So I think appetite has really picked up. (laughs) I think week 16 or so was when I really started to see that like insatiable hunger and started to finally see some weight gain. Awesome. Because I know the first trimester, you actually saw a little bit of weight loss and also, where is the, before we go into weight gain trends, um, how's the toast the, the avocado toast, is it still a daily staple? Not is at all. It? <laughs> it's like once a week if I remember. Like a brunchy. It. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so we're you guys normal-ish. Got us, yeah, you guys got us a toaster oven, so I'm like, I have to use it. Um, and we actually use that because we don't have a microwave to reheat leftovers, which is awesome. Um, but I'm still doing it like once or twice a week. But maybe not, like one yeah. slice of the toast with a bunch of avocado yep. mash and dipping egg yolk and yep. all that stuff. Whereas before I think even like egg yolks were hard. Oh yeah. It was yeah. Or I would make myself eat the yolks but like, leave the like. whites behind and <laughs> like not enjoy them at all. So So yeah, let's talk about your trends with weight and um, you know, how you've done with more dynamic body composition change because that's been really the big shift in this trimester for sure. Totally. And, and, you know, baby is growing like second trimester is all about growth of babe. So it gets up to about like two pounds by two and a half pounds, even by the end of your second trimester. So part of the weight gain is definitely baby, but 
most of it is me and fluid and I'll talk about kind of the distribution and, and some learnings there. Um, but yeah, I actually lost like a pound or two during that first trimester, I think both being sick and a little undernourished, um, but also just not exercising or lifting weights as much. There was probably some muscle loss in there. Um, I've definitely more than made up (laughs) for that now. So by 16 weeks, I was like four to five pounds up. 17 weeks, I ordered my first round of maternity clothes because my pants stopped fitting. Um, And I actually bought a scale for the first time in my life because I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go in person to doctor's appointments with COVID and I want to make sure I'm gaining enough weight, but not too much too fast. Yeah. So it's interesting. I had zero, I hate to say it out loud, but now that you're, now that you're past (laughs) the honey, now that you're in a sweet spot, I had just zero morning sickness and honestly like very limited. I had a, an enhanced sense of smell, Mm -hmm. but I really, other than like being like the taste profile, I didn't have any retching. And that means then no vomiting. And so I started gaining weight probably like at week eight. And at 14, I specifically remember, because I was like, this is too early. I remember, (laughs) I'm like, I'm just going to go to Target and I'm just going to buy pants that are two sizes up. Mm Because like, I can't get maternity clothes yet, but I'm just going to do that. And that was my like compromise. So let's talk about, um, you know, weight gain and pregnancy. Sure. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a dietitian and as someone who like usually maintains my weight with ease, and I'm sure you felt this too, like there was a little bit of an emotional element to it of like, oh my God, I'm huge. I'm getting so big and so fat. And I've really had to like step back and use a little mantra (laughs) on myself of like my body's expanding in the way it should. And I'm growing a healthy baby. Totally. And you know, we talked about how my midwife <laughs> grabbed my thigh. <laughs> it's so weird because as a dancer, I, I my kind of my core is not the area where I'm body conscious. It's usually my legs. And um, I remember my midwife at the tail end. I always told myself, "Oh yeah, you know, I started this at a healthy weight. I'm only going to gain 25 to 35 pounds, and I ended up gaining 42 pounds." And, um, and then we talked about, I was like, maybe it was 46 by the end. I'm not sure. (laughs) I swear it was 42, but I don't know. Now I'm kind of back thinking if I had, you know, pre-gained some weight to get pregnant for my base weight, I think it may have, but either way, I think I gained 42 pounds from knowing I was pregnant on. And, um, that was higher again, as kind of like an OCD type A person. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to stick within the 25 to 35. And I remember my midwife grabbing my thigh and being like, hey, sister, that's where your milk stores are. You need that milk store. And like literally jiggling my thigh, I was like mortified because I was literally the person who like ages 19 through 24, if I ate anything like excess calories and I'd like walk away from that dinner, I was like, oh, my thighs are touching. I can feel it. You know, like I had that weird body dysmorphia thing. So the thigh grab was like a really big Mm -hmm. thing. But, but that was like a good connection as well. She's like, your body is going to require as much fat as it can hold at this tail run. Cause that was at like 36 mm-hmm. weeks or something like that. And she's like, you're good. You got this. I'm like, okay. Okay. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, the American college of, um, OBGYNs recommend an, a normal weight or a healthy weight woman, um, to be within that variation of like 25 to 35 pounds of gain. Um, but if you are underweight, you may need to gain more. And if you're overweight, you may have, you know, less of a need of gain. Usually when we look at like the classic distribution, we think that there should be like a one to five pound gain in the first trimester and then about one pound a week, the remaining weeks, once you get, you know, out past that week, 12, uh, window. 
So in order to, to gain that weight, you don't you know have to eat that much more food um, because we're looking at this impact of baseline calories um, increasing by about like 300 in the second trimester and 500 in the third trimester as enough to start to see that weight gain. And I think that's a cognitive disconnect that you have to constantly treat yourself or like, oh, the baby needs ice cream or the baby needs X, Y, Z. You know, I, I think it's really eating to satiety and being mindful, like Becky said, about nutrient density. Because as you're hitting like week 24, and starting to turn the corner um, through your second trimester, the baby starts to take cues from you and starts to, you know, double the body weight for the next four weeks. And so by the end of, like you said, the second trimester, you're going to have that two pound human in your in your belly. And what's interesting and important to note um, is that the foods that you eat already starting with second trimester, first trimester, there's not enough development, but starting with second trimester, baby starts to pick up on those flavor profiles as well. And, you know, we talk about this with breastfeeding, how your breast milk as the first food will have a big influence of, you know, if you're doing more cruciferous vegetables or more pungent flavor profiles or whatnot, how that will impact baby's taste buds and, you know, how open and adventurous they are with their palate. Yeah, I'm doing like kimchi, pickled vegetables, all kinds of things. So hopefully that's expanding baby's palate in <laughs> a good way. And isn't that like a Korean culture thing? Have you have you and Byron had that conversation? Is kimchi <laughs> supposed to be the first food or just a food it's in the early? A first food. I don't know. I'll have to ask I my mother-in-law. I mean, it can be the first food. I don't think it is, but they, they really like to... Um, make videos of like Korean babies trying kimchi for the first time. So I'm sure we'll do that. Oh yeah. Um, but it is such a pungent, spicy flavor. And so far I do notice like more activity in my belly. We'll talk about kicks in a little bit, but like with spicy and pungent flavors and then with more like sweet flavor. So I think that's a good sign. <laughs> He's waking up to all the things. Yep. Oh, yep. I said he, sorry. Oh, you, you revealed the gender. <laughs> That's okay. People probably already know from Instagram. So, so we'll, we'll get there. it's a boy. <laughs> yes, it's a boy. Um, and, and I think, you know, just going back to the weight gain, not to harp on this any further, but um, knowing that it's, you know, a two pound baby at this point, I had to kind of put it into perspective for myself of like, okay, where does the rest of the weight like actually go? And I found this really cool graphic from Mama Natural that we can link about um, how your weight gain is actually distributed. So even at full term, you know, we think about an average baby being seven to eight pounds, you know, some are smaller, some are bigger. Uh, but where does the, all that extra 25, 35 plus pounds go? Um, and, and one of the biggest places is to your blood supply, which is, you know, increasing by double. So you're looking at about four pounds being blood supply and kind of that fluid gain your uterus is growing. And I think you're uh -huh. unfortunately more aware of fluid gain in Texas yeah. as you go oh, into yeah. in the summer. Oh. So <laughs> July marks the start of your third trimester, yep. right? Here yep. we go. Perfect time. I'm, I'm like struggling to get my ring off my finger right now, as you can see. <laughs> have stopped wearing my engagement ring, just doing my wedding band. It's it's pretty dynamic. Uh, but that, that's been the biggest fluctuation too. And like on the scale, there's still a variance of three to four pounds some days somewhere. I'm like, that's fluid and water for sure. Right. A, a liter of fluid is 2.2 pounds on the body. Mm -hmm. And so, and I know that you still are really good about hydration and that's a really important habit. I would say to start to master if you have not 
already because hydration is going to be the number one impact in my perspective as far as uh, breast milk production because you need ample fluid to produce breast milk and so it's really important to kind of be into that ritual already so that's not a new thing after baby totally and that's something I've been really conscious of because I've had like a few headaches and I do notice that my electrolytes get imbalanced a lot easier during pregnancy so it's something I've been hyper conscious of also means I'm peeing like every 20 minutes. So that's yes. really fun. <laughs> so where does the rest of the weight come from? So the blood supply yep. doubles yep. and uh, let's talk uterus, placenta. Yeah. So I've been told that my uterus is about the size of a soccer ball, maybe even a little bigger right now. Um, so that's increasing two plus pounds um, of that weight gain. Then, like I said, the baby's about seven to eight pounds. Stella was eight pounds, 11 uh-huh. point something ounces. She was yep. almost nine yep. pounds. <laughs> Could be up, upwards of 10 even for a real big one. So we don't know yet. Um, and then the placenta, which is literally you're growing an entire new organ in your body, which is crazy. And that can be one and a half plus pounds. And then the amniotic fluid, speaking of fluid that your baby's living in, is another couple of pounds, so two pounds or so. And breast tissue should be seeing like about two to three pounds there too. Although I feel like my boobs have not gotten that much bigger yet. So we'll see. I feel like they have. <laughs> okay. Thanks. <I> don't know. <laughs> my mother-in-law like loves to ask us these questions when we're having our conversation. And I, I'll hear like parts in Korean <laughs> and parts in English where she's like, oh yeah, are her boobs bigger yet? And Byron's like, yes, mom, they're bigger. She's like, send me pictures of her body. I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. Oh man. I know. I'm, I was just thinking about the, like my mom used to tell me, um, okay, well, starting third trimester, make sure you're aggressive with your towel on your nipples so you can toughen up the skin. Oh. Um, which I don't know okay. if there's anything to be said to that, but I mean, I guess. Okay, I can do that, I guess. It doesn't sound delightful, <laughs> nope. right? <laughs> but I was just thinking maybe she'll have some interesting, like, you know, heritage Korean approaches yep. to yep. getting your body stronger and yeah. more resilient. She told me I need to be drinking like two to three glasses of milk, and I'm like, Nope, I don't drink milk, but I have been like eating all the Greek yogurt. So that's the best I'm going to (laughs) do. And then you'll in, well, I'm sure we'll get to supplements, but have you already started adding the osteofactors or are you going to do that in the third trimester? Planning to do that third trimester. So I probably need to pick up a bottle because that's just not something I've done on a regular basis. Um, But I definitely am planning to add that in. And then we had talked about adding in um, additional supplemental choline as well because you guys know I'm like obsessed with baby being super smart and giving him a leg up um so I I have also ordered some um additional choline so I'll be adding both of those things third trimester okay awesome so let's talk about foods so we talked about how a little less emphasis on carbs what have been areas where you've seen weight gain and um craving changes I guess from the first trimester Yeah, so I haven't had like any super out of the norm cravings per se, other than... Pickles dipped in ketchup or whatever. I mean, I love pickles anyway. Um, So I I feel like I have been like at the grocery store when I do go, the quintessential pregnant woman, because I'm buying like, you know, Bubby's pickles and like ice cream every time, but I'm not combining them or doing anything weird um, with them. I think food just feels like more exciting in general. I'm still enjoying a more liberal carb approach, although I wouldn't say it's as dynamic as first trimester. That was like 
90 grams, probably some days even 100 or 120 because that was literally all I could stomach. Um, so now coming in more like 60 to 75, some days even lower, like closer to 45 to 50. Um, but there has been like the ice cream <laughs> nightcap that I, I see how women fall into this of like, I'm pregnant, I deserve a treat. So I've had this mentality of like, what's my treat today? I was a good girl and I grew this baby. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing so good. Yeah. Well, and the, and the the distinguishable with Lick is you know quality sourcing, no growth hormone, grass fed dairy, and it is from heavy cream. So you are actually getting a pretty de- the carb to, the carb to fat ratio is not actually that out of control if you're sticking to like the the actual one quarter of a pint as a serving and like using a tiny spoon then likely you're not having too dynamic of a blood sugar spike even especially if that's following the heels of a meal exactly and and really i think that's like where my extra 300 plus let's just be real um, calories have come from um it's that i still have a hard time with like the feeding frequency of like making myself actually eat a breakfast a lunch a dinner it doesn't happen most days it's more like a small breakfasty snack around 10 a.m. or so. Um, so I think the ice cream has like helped me to make up the calories that I actually need. <laughs> yes. And then we'll talk about how you're doing a lot of blood sugar managing mm-hmm. and still making light ketones. So clearly yeah. you're and not stressing your system out. The ice cream doesn't seem to make a big difference. Yeah. I'm like, what do I have to do to get my blood sugar over 90? <laughs> but again, to emphasize its portion and yep. quality and yep. all the things. Totally. So um, let's talk about events that have happened early in the second trimester, uh, activity in the body with baby kicking, and then your anatomy ultrasound. Yeah, so I started feeling kicks, um, and from what I've read and heard from other women, kind of early, like week 17 or so, there was some activity, and it was hard to distinguish, like, is this like a muscular twitch? Is this just like bowel expansion and like, you know, belly rumblings and and gas bubbles, or is this baby? And it kind of felt more like flutters at first. Um, And then like 19 to 20, the kicking was pretty pronounced. Um, So at 20 weeks, that's when you'll have your um, anatomy ultrasound. And that's when we found out um, that baby's position likely has a lot to do with why I was feeling kicks so early. So my placenta is actually anterior or toward the back of my body and baby is breech kind of straight up and down, you know, with his feet in the perfect position to <laughs> kick me and to, to feel those kicks, you know, pretty early on. And then you also found out in the ultrasound that it was a boy. Yes. And it, the picture is a good one. It is. I don't remember if you shared that on your Instagram. Did you? With a swipe or something? I think or? I did with a swipe on, yeah. on mine. But. Where it's like, you know, they always like put the word on the ultrasound, but like you wouldn't even need it. Oh, You'd you don't like, need it. That and if, is a wiener. If they're trying to hide it, um, <laughs> they ask me like, oh, do you guys want to know the sex? And I'm like, I already do, unless I'm like really anatomically challenged. <laughs> it's pretty funny. So it's a boy and his little boy part was out there and pronounced. (laughs) Yes. Um, And yeah, I I think I knew like going from early second trimester, like something in me shifted from thinking it was a girl with the morning sickness to just like this inner knowing, like, 
it's a boy. Like it's a hundred percent a boy, no matter what I do, <laughs> it's going to be a boy. <laughs> and I think in our household, we were all, I, I forget Stella would vacillate back and forth from mm-hmm. team girl and team boy, but she's pretty pumped. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be wild territory to navigate with like a sister, brother, cousin relationship. Oh, yeah. It'll be fun. Yep. <laughs> Bryson, as we've been calling him belovedly. Oh, I don't think we share this with first trimester. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> We, we've been calling the baby Bryson, so I think we probably knew it was a boy intuitively anyway. Mm-hmm. This is not the baby's name, but Brady, my husband's birthday, is September 21st, which is Becky's due date. Yes. And and Byron, her husband, always loved the name Bison, and so we made a hybrid name, Bryson, Brady's birthday, and Bison. And so we've been calling, instead of like, how's the baby doing? It's always like, how's Bryson doing? Oh, Bryson needs a treat. And so Stella's like, how much longer till Bryson comes out? And, <laughs> and so it's really funny. He's been personified as, as Bryson. And and names, you're still still not, not there, right? Your list still, is at like, what, 15 yeah, or 17? Way too many. <laughs> way too many. We worked on our... Uh... Baby shower invite list this weekend, but not on the name list yet. So, so I feel we'll like every there. week, you know, it's like an advent calendar type thing. You could just like every week it commit to crossing off at least yep. a name. Yep. And then you'll arrive at one. Yes. That's an so, idea. We'll, we'll share next update episode <laughs> if we land on something, but yes. we got time. Um, so yeah, that was probably like the highlight I would say of second trimester was finally getting confirmation that it is indeed a boy because they got to start registering for cute boy clothes and really lock in on nursery decor, which has been fun. Denning to the max. Yes. And like the vision, having something to, to tie it into. Yes. That's awesome. It's coming together. We're all so excited. <laughs> uh, let's share with listeners about, with your transition to Austin, your um, decision of your healthcare team and the birthing facility and just a little download there. Yes. So I think I shared last episode, I was kind of in a conventional practice in Houston and, and, you know, have really good insurance coverage. So wasn't worried about just getting kind of the basic bare bones stuff, but I did have some frustrations just with, um, the level of care and that mishap we talked about with, um, thyroid numbers and almost getting put on a thyroid medication unnecessarily. Um, so I knew I was transferring and I had already selected, this practice, um, actually based on a referral from my OB in Houston, she knew I was like a hippy dippy wanting to be natural mama and was like, okay, I know someone in a practice that's more natural minded. So, um, I found a practice that is basically a hybrid. So they do have OBGYNs as well as certified nurse midwives as your options for care. And they have the option for both birthing center and hospital birth. And then you're going to go with the birthing center. Do you decide then, does that mean that you have a midwife as your primary care and the OBGYN is on call for you or how does that system work? Yeah, I actually won't meet the OBs unless, um, you know, unless I risk out for some reason that there's some sort of complication or I need to go to the hospital. Um, I've seen them in circulation, but I'm working entirely with this team of midwives and they're basically on a rotating schedule so that by the time we're ready to deliver, I've met all of them and I'm comfortable, you know, with their faces at least and, and, um, have experienced kind of their care. That's what my, uh, 
what was it? A Bert, what was it called? Well, it was just a midwife clinic, I guess, mm-hmm. did, which I thought was a good idea once we got into the third trimester. Because, you know, like based on my work schedule, I maybe had Tuesday morning appointments. So it was typically the same midwife. And then they were like, once you get to third trimester, we need you rotating through so that you, yeah, establish rapport. Yeah. You don't feel like this total stranger who's never touched your belly is in helping you with the process. So I think that that's a really good strategy. And it's so reasonable because like it, it ties a human element of like, yeah, everyone needs to have a schedule. Right. <laughs> Exactly. And being on call is, is being on call, but you can't expect someone to be on call all the hours of all the week for you. Exactly. So like the first midwife I met with was 30 something weeks pregnant. She's like, I'm going to be on maternity leave. So you're not going to see me again. But it was cool to relate to her mama to mama. And then, you know, the next one I met had kind of a different style. Um, I wouldn't call it abrasive, just more direct per se. Um, and, and so it'll be interesting to see like whose style I vibe with and then who I end up with on the day of. <laughs> right. So let's talk a little bit about your choice for natural birth. Mm-hmm. What have been the big considerations and what are your biggest priorities? Sure. Um, so I, I've always known just based, you know, on my ethos that I'd want a natural birth, AKA just as little intervention, you know, as possible. And I really do believe that my body is equipped and knows what to do. Um, but doing some soul searching, even like early on in the first trimester and, and starting to read on natural birth and home birth, there was just something in me that never really jived with home birth as the option. And I don't know if it's like knowing your story of how your plan of this beautiful home water birth got derailed, you know, with Stella or just kind of wanting something in the middle where I have access to intervention if I need them, but then the plan is not to need them. Sure. Most definitely. And so my birthing center is, um, it's located directly across from the hospital where I would deliver anyway, if I were choosing hospital birth, um, it has the best NICU in Austin. It's really well regarded and it would be a wheelchair transfer versus having to call an ambulance, wait for that, or drive to the hospital if there was a complication at home. So I feel really comfortable there too. And I think this puts, you know, Byron at ease too, because as much as I feel like my body knows what it's doing, it's also the first time I'm doing this. (laughs) Totally. And that was Brady was, really freaked out about the home birth part especially when we ordered we used from in his hands was the website that we ordered a lot of the uh birth equipment if you will and like you know him seeing like scissors Mm -hmm. and like you know certain things he's like yeah yeah he's like what are well what's that for (laughs) what would happen with that and you know he like you know it's a mini surgical type Mm -hmm. kit that you're getting and he really turned pretty ghost white when he was helping me unpack that box and he was like wait what (laughs) and he was even squeamish at cutting the cord Uh Um, and yeah, so I have a blog out on my natural C-section and it talks about what happened with Stella and, uh, also that would be in that third trimester episode. So you can go listen to that to hear about all of the drama that occurred in my process. But, um, I think that, you know, choosing natural birth for me was the idea of, and even since, Um, I had to then, once I, you know, found out that she was, uh, completely breached when I was told that she was LOA for weeks and now I was past 40 weeks and now the amniotic fluid had lowered that she could not be, um, rotated in my uterus that, you know, this was the option. Um, I still even had to take a birth plan 
and um, you know rewrite that for hospital cesarean to try to maintain as much autonomy or freedom and connection with my child as as possible so you know it's i think often the complications that occur with birth are are many of them are intervention based um, or iatrogenic meaning a complication based on medical intervention so for instance giving Pitocin, you know, too early on, and and so then that creates higher contraction rate than your body was actually ready for hormonally, and that your baby was ready for. Um, you know, the idea of epidural literally paralyzing from waist down, and then women having more vaginal tearing because they they can't feel mm-hmm. the sensation of their body, so they're pushing more than they would if they had that sensation and threshold. You know, oxytocin. Uh, which is what Pitocin is trying to mimic. Oxytocin is going to, of course, help to regulate the pain in the birthing process and also maintain that connection with baby, but it doesn't completely numb, you know. So then there's the concerns of things like IV antibiotics, um, continuous fetal monitoring and overreacting, which would mm-hmm. be otherwise a normal fluctuation with baby. Um, what were some of the other things? Oh, ability of like, I think the the birthing process for mom of being able to get out of bed, sure. being able to use um, various methods of, like you said, water birth, which I think is an option at your it is center, there's a, right? There's a tub in each room, so so if you wanted to labor yeah, in the tub, maybe exactly. you don't want to birth there, yeah. but laboring there, or you know, exercise balls and all that kind of having that mobility to be able to move around the space and be less hooked up to monitoring um, can be a really positive way to let your body again kind of do the work and find the rhythm with baby in the process totally and and you know regardless of you know how you choose to birth I think it's important to recognize that a lot of us you know the image that we've gotten of birth is this really medicalized image where it's like oh you go to the hospital you have the epidural you know, you're stuck in the bed and I'm like, oh, that's actually not ideal for delivering a baby. You need to be able to move, change positions, get more comfortable, even, you know, doing things like just rolling onto your left side. If baby's heart rate is fluctuating can really help to increase that blood supply to baby and, and, you know, midwives are trained in all of this. And, um, I totally trust that process that like women know, what to do. So, you know, even planning natural childbirth, whether you end up, you know, doing some of these interventions or not, even just planning for that, um, with trained midwives can reduce your rate of C-section from 30% in the conventional setting to about 5%. And then hiring a doula, which we'll talk about in a sec, can further decrease risk. I've seen stats of even upwards of like 60 to 80%. And it's really, again, if we're talking about the iatrogenic or the medical Mm -hmm. induced impact, it's from, I I believe, the over monitoring and it starts from right away breaking of membranes, you know, so, oh, we'll break your water to help Mm -hmm. get this going. And then, oh, you're not getting speedy enough contractions. So now we're going to induce you. And then, okay, we're going to give you the epidural because we induced you too much. So now the pain threshold, Uh your body wasn't hormonally able to catch up with. So now here's the epidural. And now because you couldn't feel your body tearing, we're going to cut an episiotomy. And now, you know, and so it's just kind of this cascade of events. So really the the laboring process, although I think the term natural seems to be more pain induced or, or what have you often, or higher risk, it's, it's a good thing to acknowledge those statistics, which actually sh- show a 
sometimes more resilient recovery and less risk factor mm-hmm. with less medical intervention. Totally. So a shorter, easier labor, potentially quicker recovery, and then better outcomes for baby is kind of the, the selling point on it for me at the end of the day of, you know, better um, optimized microbiome with vaginal delivery if you're able to do it, less fetal distress, you know, with no pain meds, baby is going to be more alert, easier to breastfeed and kind of on down the line. Most definitely. And then, you know, when I told Byron it was cheaper to actually go with the birthing center and care by midwives that like really sealed the deal. So just looking at some of the expenses, like an epidural alone can be a thousand bucks. C-section could be $20,000, which is so crazy and wild. Looking at the rates of C-section in this country, you kind of have to wonder about that Um, versus a, a you know, care by midwife, natural birth is about 2000 to 4000 for the entire cost of vaginal birth. Yeah. And whereas a hospital vaginal birth even will still be about 10000 to 15000 And then I think I shared in the first episode, which was so fun, was they maxed my deductible and then they start billing baby. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, and you're like, okay, I mean, I guess it isn't its own person with the social security number and all these things, you know, but it's like, okay, well... All right. Yep. It's just that, you know, medicalized model of like, you have to charge for every Band-Aid and it's $100. (laughs) So with that birth center, uh, and I got the worst of both worlds because we paid $6,000, I believe, $5,000 or $6,000 for our home water birth and the whole midwife care. So that was at 20 weeks onward. Is that how you're... $4,000 $4,000 or whatever it is here, it's, it's from all of your care appointments or are those done through insurance? Those are done through insurance. So the birthing center cost is just for the actual like delivery Burr. and um, post-op care. Okay. So we don't actually have to pay that. I'm putting a deposit down just to reserve my space because I actually think with COVID, a lot more women are choosing a non-hospital birthing location. Um, and I just don't want to run into that, but you actually don't have to pay there until I think 34 weeks. Okay. So mine was $6,000 from weeks 20 on, but that was all of the checkup mm-hmm. appointments, the delivery, and then two postpartum appointments. But I got the delight of a C-section bill on top of yep. it. So that, and you know, non-refundable $6,000 for the uh-huh. quote unquote, not happening home birth. So anyway, yeah. um, yeah. So, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, your choice of hiring a doula. Sure. So, you know, with the extra money that ideally we're going to save by not having a hospital birth, um, I am, you know, choosing to bring on a doula and a doula is more of like a birthing coach versus a midwife who is more, you know, medically trained in terms of her interventions. Um, so I am going with a doula that was just, you know, recommended by a friend who used her for both of her births and, um, was really, you know, highly rated when I kind of looked into her and we just had a really good conversation. So, um, my thought process with, with bringing on a doula, you know, this is my first time doing this. I want to make sure that, um, I labor at home for as long as I can and not go to, um, the birthing center too early. And I know that that would be like a, a contention point between Byron and I, he'd probably have the car ready and like packed to go. And he'd have like, spreadsheets. Yeah. He'd be like, beep, 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 yeah, no, he will, he will are... be, he will be like timing contractions. And like, I know he will. He's going to have a clipboard, <laughs> clipboard and a clock. And like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to be like, let's go for a walk and bake cookies. So I think that just takes the guesswork 
out of that, not that it's her ultimate decision, but at least someone who's been there and can advise like, okay, things are getting closer together. Like let's start to transition. So she's someone that I call really as soon as they go into labor. Um, and you know, some of the stats on, on doula use, um, that I was pretty impressed by, you know, again, reducing that cesarean rate by upwards of 50, even upwards of 80% in STEM, uh, statistics, and then, um, reducing your length of labor, reducing the need for oxytocin or pitocin by 40%, reducing the need for epidural. And really her role is just to provide, um, kind of comfort measures. So from hands-on massage to helping me to change positions and, and, uh, really coaching me through the birthing process and being someone who's there just for me versus my midwife might be attending a birth down the hall and might be kind of in and out. Once we go to the birthing center, she'll be there. She can relieve Byron and help him <laughs> to coach me as well, because who knows what is going to come out of his mouth. And <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I think yep. a doula is at least 50% there for the husband oh, totally. or partner, you know, because they are giving them cues or a strategic job mm-hmm. to do. If they're like a nervous Nelly, it's like, okay, go fill this thing with water and get a cloth and some ice. Like even just if you can read that the wife needs some time. It's funny, we were talking a couple weeks ago, Becky and I to my sister-in-law, and she was recalling her uh, first home birth, which was a really intense at-home labor. And she said the biggest thing that she remembers that they laugh about was, her husband was like up in her face and was like, you know, hey baby, you got this or whatever. And she just looks at him and took her palm to his face and said, <laughs> hot, stinky breath. <laughs> hot, stinky breath. And, and the, the doula was like, okay, like grab the husband. Was like, you need to back away from her. Like go hold her hand at the other side of the bed or whatever. She does not want you in her face right now. So they can kind of read some of those cues mm-hmm. and, you know, and also provide direction and like set this neutral pace to not allow anxiety anxiety to go through the roof so I think that's a good a good good call I had planned to have a doula and then my midwife actually uh, came in for the cesarean section and was up by me and Brady so she almost acted as like a doula through the c-section process and so when Stella was like fused in my uterus she had told me she was like you're gonna feel like you're at the dentist getting like the pressure of like a tooth pulled out Um, That's what you'll kind of experience in your uterus. And it was interesting because when the complications arose in the process, like I could read, you know, her and Brady and everyone, and she's like got her hand on my shoulder. She's like, okay. And that pressure we talked about, here it is. And then it was like, and the pressure is still there. Yep. Okay. And, you know, it kind of went on for way too long. And the um, high risk OBGYN said that he had to take his entire forearm in my uterus and scoop her head out. Usually with a breech, they just like pop their booties up and the, the babe comes out. But I guess Stella had to be like manually removed from his hand going around her head um, because of the um, infusion that occurred in, in my uterus with her. So it was a complicated process, but still just even having her versus just Brady's ghost right. face Oh yeah, <laughs> to look up at. Cause you know, we're all like, we have no idea how this is supposed to go down yep. and just kind of having that reassurance and you know, her, um, you know, doing the vaginal seeding, which was the big thing that I really wanted to ensure with the microbiome hit was obviously with the sterilized birth process. How do we get the microbiome, um, you know, 
inoculated, if you will. And so I had uh, done vaginal seeding, and then she was the one who was really big advocate with my OBGYN and um, the high risk surgeon, and you know was over there gauzing and, and doing all of the inoculation because Brady was like wait, we're going to take that, that gauze that you had in your vagina and I'm supposed to put it in her mouth and in her eyes and in her what? And I was like, you just, you just need to do it. I'm doing all this stuff. This is your one job. And like Holly looks at me, she's like, I got this. It's fine. I got this. So she kind of served as the doula of the the high risk C-section. And I think those, that's a good role to have someone there. Yeah. And that's something that's been important to me throughout this whole process is like, I want someone to tell me exactly. And I think that's from the functional medicine background of, of, I just want to know exactly what's happening in my body of like every moment of this. So, you know, it's okay if you give me more information than you think is necessary and, and, you know, plan to have that conversation with the doula of like, tell me what's happening now and what should be happening in the next 15 minutes. And like, I, I like that kind of energy. So I think that'll be really helpful. And having some connection with you of like, oh, do you, does it feel mm-hmm. good to have hip pressure or does it feel good to, you know, to kind of know your body and, and to be able to ask the right questions versus again, I think husbands kind of sometimes just want to go in there and just do, uh-huh. and it's like, okay, yeah, maybe. I, don't, I don't need a light petting touch on my back. Like I need someone to grab get my your, hips or get like, your hands yeah. off of me. <laughs> Hot, sticky breath. <laughs> so let's talk about, it sounds like a lot of your plans are outlined and we're yep. so excited to see how things evolve. Uh, let's talk a little bit. You mentioned, you know, COVID playing a role also of the influx of uh, individuals that are doing more of a birth center approach versus hospital. Let's talk about advocacy and, you know, how your appointments have been these last two in this trimester with the, the climate of everything going on with the pandemic. Sure. Um, so I was really grateful that Byron was able to come with me to that 20 week appointment. Cause I've heard for the most part, you know, from friends who are doing conventional care and, and from the OB office in Houston, they weren't allowing partners into those appointments. And that was the one where I was like, this is going to be so sad if he can't like have that experience of, you know, he hadn't been to any appointment with me prior and probably won't come until tail end again. Um, but he was able to actually come and, and be with me through that process and see the baby and see the baby. Um, we have had to wear masks, which, you know, I've kind of had rapport with the nurses and such. They're like, I'm going to be so glad when I can stop wearing them. And I'm like, haha, you know, they don't work. Right. (laughs) We're kind of on the, the same page there. And I've been asking a lot of questions, um, you know, within the practice too, like, have you seen, you know, um, mandatory testing for COVID and, and in the hospital, the answer is yes. In the birthing center, they won't be doing that. Um, so a lot of hospitals are right now for any kind of elective surgery mandating that you get a COVID test and then you find out that you have it, but you had no symptoms at all. So same thing with birth in a lot of places in a lot of states. Um, and also the big thing with COVID so far has been whether a support person is allowed to be present at all. So I know in the, you know, uh, upswing of things in, in New York and when hospitals were really overcrowded, even dad wasn't allowed in, in some cases. And I just can't imagine feeling so isolated and alone during this, like, you know, wild, crazy process that you, you know, you need support there. Um, so there has been a lot of advocacy, um, around birth support and most States have been able to get approved at least one support person in there. I'm actually in this group, um, that Aviva Ram who's a midwife and um, MD, MD, 
um, started called I Deserve Birth Support, and a lot of women have been sharing their stories in there. So um, it's improved. I know that the um, doulas are now allowed in most places, and, and in Texas in general, doulas have been allowed as well as the husband in the room, um, even in the hospital setting. So actually over at um, evidence-based birth, you can look by state kind of what the guidelines are. Um, and look up specific hospitals and women are kind of self-reporting, you know, any incidents that have come up around the COVID stuff. So I'm sure I'll have more to come. I've got some, um, paperwork that I will be including with my birth plan around opting out of the, um, COVID testing. I mean, if that's even, that's what I was going to say, I would, I would definitely say for those that are listening now real time and are already Mm -hmm. in their third trimester, that is language that I would have in bold. Um, you know, right under your name, your social security, your listed allergies, and you know your direct directives. Because, um, and I'll share mine as maybe a blog sure. or something yeah. that would be fun. But um, most definitely, because that's been the biggest kind of horror stories that I've heard mm-hmm. in real lifetime is that um, if a mom has tested, and I think this was really more going on in April. I think mm-hmm. honestly, really in May, things started to dissipate and I don't believe any of this is going on now but in April I heard about handfuls of cases where mom tested positive and then they would not allow mom to have skin-to-skin connection even though there's zero evidence Mm -hmm. showing that that would be a risk factor and um you know these were like asymptomatic positives from from the mamas you know so they, they there were a couple cases of moms that actually were symptomatic infected um, which I think is a little bit different, but in all cases, from any illness, when mom has flu, fever, whatnot, the recommendation is always still to mm-hmm. breastfeed your child because your b- body is making these antibodies. And that's the best way to support your child's immune system. So that was just heart-wrenching to me when I read about a case where a mom went three days before she was able mm-hmm. to hold her baby. Mm-hmm. And it's just like thinking of colostrum. And, and I think that she was pulling colostrum and saving in syringes and having that go to the... the um, I don't know if the baby was in the NICU or just in you know the nursery because it was a full-term baby so I'm assuming just the nursery but that's just heart-wrenching to me and I think just inhumane and, and should is poor policy yep and and even per the CDC um that is not a recommendation to separate there is the recommendation that mom should you know wear a mask while breastfeeding and and if she was symptomatic positive you know that might be a good thing although babies seem to be really um, not touched by by COVID um, in large part. So that's also, you know, a, a really um, silly intervention that you can't see your mama and yes. her face. Um, but I, oh. I think it's coming around. I will um, link, though, just some language that you can put in a birth plan for mamas that are birthing sooner than I will be. Um, and I'll share with you guys in episode three, like anything that I come across as well. But and yeah, the evidence-based birth yep. website as a yep. resource for yep. sure. But in all of this, you have the right to advocate and, and to refusal is the thing you can refuse to be separated from your baby as long as you are conscious and able to refuse and hopefully have a partner there that can also advocate for you. Yep. That was in our plan as well. Yep. That baby was not to leave yep. the room. Yeah. So let's talk about the rebound in the thyroid. Um, so you had your thyroid drawn at what week again? What were the two weeks that you had them run? Do you recall? It was um, week 12 um, where my TSH was off um, and nothing else 
to my knowledge was off. I, I would have to go back and look at the exact numbers, but my TSH was off. It was pretty high, like in a 5.6 or so at week 12. And then I repeated literally less than a week later and it was normal again. Um, so that was where I was recommended to go on levothyroxine. And I was like, can you just retest and actually check you know, T3 and, and free T4, um, because this isn't even a complete picture. I'm, I'm really confused by this recommendation. And even within a week's time, it had already normalized and, and rebounded. And that, that was your thorough mm-hmm. panel that you did? Yep. Um, okay. So I did a panel, yeah, week 12, and then like literally beginning of, of week 13, just because I was like, this isn't right. And this isn't my norm. And then, um, I shared that with the midwife at the 20 week appointment. She was like, let's just check again, just to make sure since it was off that one time. Um, and everything came back this time, totally normal. Yeah. So Becky's TSH was Mm 2.65. Her free T4 was 1.07 and the free T3 was 3.0, which we always say, you know, free T3 around 2.8 or above free T4 over one. Um, and then the TSH, lower than 1.25 but again with pregnancy and when you're pumping in the pituitary it's to be expected Mm -hmm. that the tsh will be somewhat elevated and so as long as you have that ample free t3 and free t4 you're going to be in fine space and again remember the reference range is huge for tsh all the way up to four so well within normal quote unquote yep and even if you are above like i never recommend going on a medication based on a single data point because there can be such dynamic on a data point that's a feedback mechanism Uh (laughs) not actually an indicator of the thyroid hormone that's circulating through your body yes so Happy to report thyroid has tested fine. And that's another area where it's like, mamas, if something doesn't feel right with you, ask more questions, ask to be retested, ask for a second opinion or go somewhere else to get an opinion. Because had I been put on thyroid medication, that actually could have caused an increased risk of miscarriage at that time because I could have gone hypothyroid or hyper, hyper. excuse me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And let's talk about now the uh, data you're collecting towards the tail of the second trimester. Um, You opted out of the oral glucose tolerance test. Let's discuss the, you know, why behind that for you and how you're, you know, doing an alternate plan. Yep. So um, I had that conversation right away at week 20 because I read um, in the birthing center contract that I was required to have some form of an oral glucose tolerance test. So I was like, I want to just get this out there before, you know, we go any further. Will I be able to do an alternate test? And she was like, yes. That's what I'm doing too, actually, right now. Um, What we can do instead is do a full week of um, finger prick testing, which is what I'm doing now. It's not that fun, but I'm doing it and I'm actually enjoying getting the data. Um, But a full week of fasting glucose and then two hour postprandial reads after your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and she, she did have a couple of comments here and there that I just kind of let roll off, but she, you know, said something about being in ketosis, being dangerous for the baby. And she also kind of poo-pooed my request for a repeat of my A1C and fasting insulin. Cause she was like, oh, it won't be relevant because really that insulin resistance doesn't pick up until like week 25 on, which I get that. I would just, you know, I still wanted the number run. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah. So uh, the the oral glucose test, what's interesting and I think important to discuss is that 
you can get a false positive of gestational diabetes and then too much intervention mm-hmm. assigned with it um, from failing the glucose tolerance test. The glucola, you know, which is this standard liquid beverage that they use, is 50 grams of glucose and then drawing the blood at one hour post consumption. And, um, you know, then they'll also do a two hour post consumption. And the glucola drink is comprised of dextrose from corn. Um, citric acid, natural flavoring, food starch, modified food starch, glycerol ester of wood resin, brominated soybean oil, which we know brominated vegetable oil has huge impact as an endocrine disruptor and can have cardiovascular implications of concern, Um, food dyes and coloring, so there's yellow number six, and um, BHA preservative and sodium benzoate. So these are the ingredients in the thing that you're supposed to drink to test your tolerance. And you could opt for a liquid tolerance, like, um, you know, grape juice Mm -hmm. or apple juice is often what I'll see people do. Yep. Um, But, and that wasn't even presented to me as an option. I planned for that to be my backup option. Um, but I know other mamas who are doing that now and they have a, um, food dye free (laughs) glucola version but I looked at the ingredients of that. It's still the dextrose. It's, it doesn't have the um, brominated vegetable oil in it, but it's still dextrose and it still has all of the preservatives. And it's like, couldn't I literally just mix you know, sugar with water and drink it um, and get the same impact? <laughs> right, right. And, and regardless, so, so let's, let's talk first actually about the concern of toxins in uh, utero and, you know, baby experience, um, or, you know, how is that concerning to drink something like this and, um, or to, you know, eat processed foods or what I love to call chemical shit storms or, um, you know, what's the impact of, of toxins, Becky, on baby in this development process. And then let's talk about failing the tolerance test, regardless of if you chose a, a clean beverage or not. Sure. So yeah, we're obviously like within the diet, looking to minimize toxin exposure for babe. And, you know, this is one of the times that we tell women that it's so important to hone in on diet and, and focus on what they eat. So why the heck would you have them drink this like toxic laden beverage? Um, and I think a big concern there, you know, with um, a lot of these toxins is that they are going to actually your, your placenta is a way that you detoxify. And so they're going to be passed on to baby. So if you're having an upregulation or an increase of toxin, you're actually getting more concentration into the placenta and into, you know, baby as well, which is not ideal. <laughs> yeah. And the center for science and public interest does call out the brominated vegetable mm-hmm. oil in particular, you know, it is in the, um, grass place or generally recognized as safe as of now for the FDA, but the CSPI is calling for that to be removed. Um, and we've seen that European union and Japan have removed brominated vegetable oil years ago. Mm-hmm. This is one that I've called out um, in my detox class that yeah. I taught with that girl petitioning Gatorade as the company. It's it's usually it's an emulsifier, and what what brominated vegetable do is it, it is it keeps the solute or like the colorant mm-hmm. dispersed equally, so that like your glucola drink needs to be apparently yellow orange, bright orange. Yeah. Like why the heck does it that matter? Does it's not like you. you're gonna. Right. Drink this on a daily basis. And even then. Right. Right. 
So yeah, I, I think the cost of benefit of just excluding that is mm-hmm. one thing. And then let's talk about even if it was a clean thing, like even if it was organic juice, um, if you are eating a lower carbohydrate diet, and not even keto. We've talked about in that episode uh, on keto and pregnancy how Becky and I clinically don't recommend a tight ketogenic diet. We recommend carb control and eating intuitively. And so, you know, like we said, first trimester might be a little bit higher carbs. Second trimester, we are back to more of a lower glycemic approach, like that 60 to 75, maybe upwards of 90 grams of carbs, and then kind of hanging in that space through the remainder of the pregnancy. Um, but when we're looking at someone that's eating a lower carb diet or a paleo like diet, and they have this influx of concentrated sugar, their body physiologically has not really been activated to respond to that level of a glucose spike. So chances are, because that's a foreign response to their metabolism, they're going to not have as much of an insulin release as someone who's constantly stressed by sugar. So it may not be an indication of gestational diabetes by any means. Mm -hmm. It may be just a radical influx of glucose that that individual's body is not adapted to. Sure. So if you're drinking like big gulps, then your body's probably not even going to be like, this is dynamically different. But if you're not drinking juice at all, and, and even the thought of like having to drink you know, an option would be like two cups of grape juice or orange juice. I'm like that just makes me nauseous thinking about it. Like, I don't know if I could get through it. <laughs> and if we were comparing to something like back circle to the ice cream, because mm-hmm. again, I want to call that out in the sense of, um, you know, uh, it's like light and fun to talk about, but it's not by any means like a nourishing recommendation on a daily basis because gestational diabetes is a pretty serious mm-hmm. concern. And we know that about 9.2 of pregnant women do develop gestational diabetes during their pregnancy. But again, the variance of, again, that portion control and that distribution of like the grass-fed lick ice cream, if you are having a half cup, which is an actual serving size, and it's 23 grams of carbs, but it's also 20 grams of fat, (laughs) that influence metabolically is going to be very different than 50 grams of carbs with zero grams of fat. So it's very dynamic, lighter fluid for your blood sugar to drink any liquid glucose beverage, regardless of the source, when you're not getting this in composition with fat and protein. And and that's the big thing to watch. And the idea of monitoring gestational diabetes in individuals that are eating pasta and garlic bread and carbing up on a regular basis, I think is very important. And for those individuals that are used to these influxes of maybe 90 grams of carbs at a meal, goodness gracious, then their body likely would have maybe even less of a fail than someone like Becky having the oral glucose tolerance where she might get a higher glucose spike. Because again, it's a foreign impact for her body's metabolism. And she's now for 10, I don't know, at least five plus years been avoiding quote unquote naked carbs. So that's a metabolic abnormality, if you will. Totally, totally. And, And means that the screening is really flawed in that it could miss people who are actually at risk. And then I've seen so many of my friends who eat more of a clean paleo, maybe not keto diet, um, fail this test and like freak out. And the reality is the intervention, you know, during pregnancy is not going to be much. You're just going to be told to monitor diet. They're likely not going to put you on medication, but you might have that box checked of, you know, you're at higher risk for having a larger baby. And then that begets C-section. 
Yeah. And, 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 and some are put on medication yep. from it. So it's, it's something to really watch for. So let's talk about, you mentioned postprandial yes. blood sugar and fasting blood sugar. Let's talk about an application, you know, what you're doing and how you're monitoring and, and maybe how that gives a more realistic, um, data for an individual, especially when looking over a length of a week of blood sugar regulation and, and a true factor of gestational diabetic risk. Totally. So yeah, like I said, I'm kind of a, a nerd in that I'm enjoying getting the data. I'm not enjoying like having to prick my finger four times every single day. Um, but yeah, what I've been doing is, is taking a reading, you know, at fasting in the morning. I haven't been great about doing it before my coffee that does have collagen in it. So there might be a little bit of a variation and flaw, um, there, but basically should be, you know, at fasting first thing in the morning. Um, and then, you know, my fast right now is probably more like 10 to 12 hours versus like a full 12 hours, but at that fasting time and then two hours after each meal. So my breakfast, or if it's a breakfast snack and then two hours post, I've had to like set a timer on myself so that I don't go too, too long. Um, but the data I've gotten, you know, so far really it's been cool to see that although my morning fasting is is higher than i'm fully when i'm fully in ketosis it's still hanging in like the 70s to 80s normally i think it would be more like 60s to 70s um, and all of my postprandial reads have been between 70 and 90 or i think 92 is like the highest i've gotten and i was trying like i added um a liquid carb in the form of a mocktail and ice cream and i still came in at 92 two hours after that meal hmm. <laughs> so i can't get it to go higher and i may do a little bit more than a week just because i'm like enjoying getting the the nerdy data but i think the point is here this gives you more of a chance to course correct if you are seeing some wonky readings or if you're seeing you know, that your sugars are trending higher than they should, you can use this data to your advantage and, you know, change and shift the diet and actually see real time. Okay. When I pair that with, you know, protein and fat, my blood sugars normalize and stabilize and, oh, that carb really doesn't work for me. And, and you can use this to kind of manipulate the diet and, and, you know, actually, um, improve outcomes for yourself and baby versus just getting slapped with a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Right. And generally we recommend capping meals at 30 grams of carbs. And then, you know, you can see if you have to tighten up further from that, uh, depending on those postprandial reads. And they usually do recommend glucose monitoring if you failed your glucose tolerance test anyway, mm -hmm. you know, so it's something that, you know, is good information to gather. And like Becky said, to empower yourself of, okay, well, my body responds better to sweet potato than it does white rice or vice versa. Um, so you can be empowered with best food choices for optimal blood sugar metabolism. And then in the constructs of your morning fasting read, you can determine if your body performs better having an evening snack or not. Um, so, you know, cutting off at dinner or having a snack at 930. Um, and then, you know, what the composition of that snack would look like to be best, if it has to be high fiber and high fat and protein. Um, and then, you know, you can play with things like variants of exercise or, you know, what happens after my highest carb meal, if I go for a walk for 30 mm -hmm. minutes versus not. And so that's where you can really tighter in your lifestyle and diet strategy for management, which is really optimal. That's the most direct empowerment that you can get from the data. 
Totally, totally. So I like what I'm doing, even though my fingers are, you know, bleeding all the time. <laughs> I'm almost done. Um, so I think the real important takeaway here is that, you know, you have the right to opt out of, of any medical intervention during pregnancy and birth. And um, even, you know, recognized by the American College of Gynecology that gestational diabetes guidelines should not be construed as, as dictating your exclusive course of treatment or procedures and, you know, variation in practice should be warranted based on needs of individuals and their resources, et cetera. So it's very well recognized that you can opt out of this. I think just a lot of mamas don't question it. So ask the questions. <laughs> Most definitely. And yep. so if a person is managing their blood sugar based on diet control, and I generally do say like that 60 to 75 grams a day is a really good place to be. Um, and then if they are moving their body after their higher carb meal, which is another recommendation and they've played with managing that fasting read, you know, some of the things beyond the snack at the night in the fasting read could be stress and depth and mm-hmm. quality of sleep. Um, so let's talk about some interventions in the world of that. And then also on nutrients that play a role with blood sugar metabolism. Maybe let's go there first. Um, so we'll do Dawn phenomenon second, but nutrients that are important for blood sugar metabolism, because a lot of prenatals, you know, may be lacking some of the priorities when we're looking at blood sugar metabolism. So let's highlight some of those that are in the multivale mama and how they are unique in the world of blood sugar metabolism. Totally. So I think the first one that comes to mind for me is inositol. And this is one that actually has been studied in cases of insulin resistance and gestational diabetes with beneficial outcomes. And this is one I think our listeners are probably really familiar with um, just because of our relax and regulate formula that combines magnesium glycinate with inositol. So that's something I've been super proactive about my like now two, sometimes three scoops of, of relax and regulate um, at night. Plus our, our multi-avail mama actually has some inositol in it as well. And that, I guess that would hit since you started with inositol, (laughs) the dawn phenomenon element as well, (laughs) because relax and regulate is going to help that depth and quality of sleep. And the form of the magnesium bisglycinate in there actually crosses the blood brain barrier, which um, blocks the pituitary from stimulating the adrenal glands. So it reduces that cortisol stimulation, which could wake you up in the middle of the night. And also that cortisol release, which creates that slingshot of elevated blood sugar in the morning. So the relax and regulate is a really great intervention when we're looking at depth and quality of sleep, stress response, as well as fasted blood sugar levels. And then um, as you were starting to say, Becky, there's that insulin resistance piece when inositol levels are optimized. So there's actually a research study from Diabetic Diabetes Medicine Journal, um, and it's called The Effect of Myo-Inositol Supplementation on Insulin Resistance in Patients with Gestational Diabetes. And they looked at a trial using four grams, which is a single scoop of our relax and regulate. And they had a isocaloric uh, diet prescription and breakdown of macros. And they did see substantial outcomes with insulin um, resistance in the individuals that used the myo-inositol. What was the statistic here? I'm looking for it. Fasting glucose and insulin and consequently homeostasis model of assessment of insulin resistance decreased in both groups 
but the decline in the study group was significantly greater than that in the control group because they did use a diet intervention as well. There was 50% reduction in the study group and only 29% in just the diet control group. So there was a you know substantial impact of 31 extra percent influence on the blood sugar metabolism with that four grams of the myo inositol. And interestingly enough, I really think that that's like, it's not in the mama to be bundle. The mama to be bundle is, or is it Becky? No, it's real. It's, it's not, but it kind of should be an add on. <laughs> I know it's the add on because the, the multi, the mama to be bundle has the multi avail mama, which is our prenatal. And then it has the restore baseline probiotic, which is also super important to ensure probacteria support, especially as you're getting into the third trimester and looking at optimizing baby's microbiome and reducing intervention um, on the medical level and supporting your body's resilience and recovery from the delivery. Um, so it's the probiotic, the multi prenatal, and then the other one in there is the EPA DHA extra because of the importance of that omega-3 for baby's brain development. But relax and regulate is the close best friend to that bundle. And I was going to say all the way through postpartum, because whenever milk supply is low, relax and regulate is also the first intervention and has really fantastic outcomes with milk production. So as a baseline, our multi-avail mama is going to have some inositol, but you want to probably add on that relax and regulate as an extra scoop. How much is in the... That's why I couldn't find it. I don't oh, see inositol in the multi-avail mama. I thought multi-avail mama. I made that up. It's not. <laughs> nope. But the multi-avail mama does have a lot of minerals. So just to clarify, it doesn't have the myo-inositol in our multi-avail mama. That would be only in the relax and regulate. Our, um, you know, B complex will have that in there, mm-hmm. but, um, and Becky has been adding that on. So yeah. maybe that's what's that's in your brain. probably what's in my pregnancy brain. Who knows? It's a real but, thing. <laughs> but there are minerals that are really yeah. important to note. So when I'm highlighting minerals of importance with pregnancy, I'm looking at things like magnesium and zinc and selenium and copper and manganese and chromium and molybdenum and also the impact of uh, iron and calcium and iodine. So all of these are found as well as complex bioavailable B vitamins, and then also vitamins like vitamin A in the best blend of both mixed carotenoids and palmitate, a good amount of also vitamin C in here, and uh, vitamin K, and so much more. Um, Let's highlight some of the minerals of focus that are in the multi-avail mama and how those impact blood sugar metabolism. Yes, so zinc is definitely in there now that I've read the label. Um, and there's about 11, uh, there's 11 milligrams, um, in the multi mama in four capsules. So recommendation during pregnancy is about 12 milligrams per day. So you're just, just shy of that, but very likely making that up, um, in food. And this is one, um, there's a big focus on zinc for, um, reducing preterm birth. Um, so another big reason to ensure that we're not zinc deficient during pregnancy, um, and, and seeing zinc deficiency can also prolong labor. So definitely not something that we want. Um, but let's speak to maybe the, the blood sugar influence of zinc. Sure. So it is, uh, playing a role to protect the pancreatic beta cells, uh, from damage, which that's, we're talking about the production of insulin. And then, um, the zinc plays a big role in the expression of genes that are linked to diabetes, as well as the storage and secretion of insulin and the requirement of zinc in synthesis, hence that kind of beta cell pancreatic function. And then, you know, during this time of the year, zinc has gotten a big showing in the world of the pandemic and immune health. 
But like Becky said, in the world of baby, it's preterm labor we see and uh, low birth weight Mm -hmm. with moms that have low zinc levels. And we see this um, in the vegetarian population, especially high need for zinc supplementation because this is highest available in red meat. Um, So another reason to get that four times a week of the grass-fed beef in your diet or lamb. Um, But, and, and then, you know, looking at also sources like shellfish as a great option. Uh, let's talk a little bit about chromium and how that works. I think that chromium is maybe more acknowledged in mm-hmm. the nutrient world for blood sugar metabolism. Um, so when we're looking at chromium, we're looking also at the insulin function. We do see that chromium, uh, when optimized, can help with fertility. It does play a role with both carbohydrate and fat metabolism. It is essential for fetal growth and development. Um, and we do know that if we have gestational diabetes, that this has increased recommendation of need. Um, the multi-avail mamas that we have highlighted yeah, here. Yeah, 30 micrograms. Okay. Yep. And so the recommendation for pregnant women is to get 29 micrograms. So that is um, right, right above that standard. Yep. And then, you know, food sources, you wouldn't want to do like an additional chromium supplement. Likely you'd want this to be in a comprehensive multi. And then we always talk about broccoli as a pretty good source of chromium, um, Ceylon cinnamon, and then brewer's yeast, which I think of more so in the world of like breast milk production and probably will be incorporating that in some recipes for, you know, lactation cookies and things like that. Totally. And, uh, green beans too. That's a good one for chromium. Okay, so big push if you are having issues getting your blood sugar levels under control and are pregnant, definitely check out the Relax and Regulate and then look at the back of your prenatal and make sure that it at least has zinc and chromium. Um, But check out all of the trace minerals and the nutrient diversity that we do have strategically in the multi-avail mama. Make sure, as always, as we mentioned in first trimester episode, that your folate is in a methylated form, that it is not synthetic folic acid. And then also look at the additives in the prenatal to make sure that it is free of dyes and fillers and colorants and things that your body just doesn't need and aren't going to serve babe. All right, so let's round it out just with maybe a couple of rapid fire on second trimester symptoms. And I won't speak to like all of the things that could happen. I'll maybe just speak to a few things I've experienced and then we can kind of go back and forth on the why and and what we would do. Um, So anxiety now for a lot of women comes up. And I think partially this is just around like all of the things that are going to change in your life and all of the to-do list and the like unknown of, is my baby okay? Like between all of these ultrasounds, I don't get to see or hear, you know, the heartbeat. So I think there's a lot of that of just, you know, the unknown. And I know I've been having a lot of like anxiety dreams about baby's birth position, like not being right. And I'm like, stop worrying about that. You don't have to think about it. Don't ruminate. You need a mantra. Yep. I need a mantra and I need to, um, do downward dog like every day. So I at least feel like I'm doing something productive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, anxiety is a survival mechanism that occurs, you know, and, the brain of a pregnant woman actually goes through some dynamic changes. There is a more of a concentration of gray matter. Um, there are shifts in the prefrontal cortex, the midbrain, the parietal lobes, and elsewhere. And really on the most basic level, these changes help with a flood of hormones during pregnancy and the postpartum period 
to attract mother to her baby, to be in survival mode of protecting her baby. And so it's both the maternal overwhelming love connection as well as this like fierce mama bear protectiveness of survival. And the, the big thing that's interesting is the amygdala, um, which this is the part of the brain that helps process memory and drives the emotional reactions of fear, anxiety, and aggression. And we do see that the activity in the amygdala grows in the weeks and months after giving birth. And researchers really believe that this is correlated with that, again, connection uh, and hypersensitivity to baby's needs. Like, is, is baby hungry? Does it need, <laughs> it's kind of like that classic, like mm-hmm. mom worry, right? But it does create this, this larger receptor function of the amygdala, which does large and with the cocktail of hormones that are delivered to the brain postpartum, that um, it does provide these reward centers in mama's brain based on you know baby and her attentiveness to baby so the affection she feels when she's feeding baby and you know lifting baby up from nap and also it can be associated with um, impact on depression if there's damage to the amygdala or if that response doesn't occur because there's that lack of connection Um, And oxytocin we've talked about in past episodes as well as playing a role with connection. And we know that plays a role with, like I said, the pain management during the birth process as well as supporting the uh, breastfeeding process as well. Um, But oxytocin, if inadequate, can drive anxiety and lack of trust or more of a fear response. Tell real quick, Becky, about your dog incident. Oh <laughs> because we, we've been talking yeah. when we go on walks. We yeah. walk a lot like after a stressful day. And I've been asking her because I felt kind of keyed up once I got into my third trimester. We had a lot of off-leash pits in my neighborhood. And um, my dog was pretty aggressive too. And um, he was like a pit blend, uh, black lab. And um, I remember just constantly being like, Ugh! like that, like someone was just going to attack us, you know, or whatever. And like ready to like jump on top of a hood of a car. Um, which you did. Yeah. Which I did do. <laughs> but let's hear about your story. Yeah. And so, your poor tailbone. Oh my gosh. Um, so it was probably like a week and a half or two weeks into our move to Austin. And I was like getting my daily walks in, loving it, taking our dog Houston out for a walk in the mornings before starting clients or before starting my work for the day. Um, I was like, oh, this neighborhood is great. It feels safe. It's, you know, so fabulous. I was coming back from a walk, like literally, you know, within 200 yards or or less, a hundred yards probably of, of our house. And, um, walking up the hill, had my headphones in. So I wasn't like super perceptive and, and, aware um and this pit bull got off of its leash it was um tied up in someone's front yard with like a really flimsy little stake in the ground and this dog just comes like lunging at us and I you know turned around really fast and started like kicking at the dog and trying to protect my dog which in retrospect I probably should have just like let Let them go. Um I now carry pepper spray for these (laughs) incidents but it was a really scary like super um, anxiety-provoking incident where now I feel like every time I go for a walk, I either need Byron with me or I'm like hyper-vigilant, very aware of my surroundings. And um, I noticed it took like longer than usual to kind of come down from this, you know, scenario as well. So I got knocked over by the dog and I like literally laid in the street and I was like, 
I'm effing pregnant. And I ended up being like this really sweet woman who's also pregnant, who was like, I'm so sorry. You know, it, it all turned out well. And they might be our first friends as neighbors after the pandemic. We don't know yet, but not the dog, not Rosie. Um, so, you know, I, I, that day was like, I'm just going to like lay down and take some Gabacom and some CBD and just try to like get out of this, you know, sympathetic nervous system fight or flight. But I've noticed really since then, just feeling like more keyed up and, and easily triggered even with like driving and things like that. So I think the changes you're referring to are happening for sure. Well, yeah. Cause we were talking on the walk. I was like, Oh, let's research the amygdala. Yeah, because yeah, you yeah. know, We think of that as like the lizard brain yep. and you know, that's the, the limbic system response and it's in charge of fight, flight, fear, freezing. And so I was like, I, I bet. And, and also she had just moved and then, you know, there's like the pandemic and all the things. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. you, we need to make sure that you are in this safe place. And so I think that that's a really good space also beyond like layering in the relax and regulate, making sure you are taking that probiotic because again, that impact of the lacto and bifido strains that are in the restore baseline, as well as the targeted strength product are going to help with managing mood and also help with depression postpartum. So really important to be proactive in that space. And then practicing things like the four, seven, eight breath, which actually is going to upregulate that vagus nerve to push you into that parasympathetic space. Really important because I think in the third trimester episode, let's cover further a little bit more about the impact of mama's cortisol levels and sure. baby's development, yeah. because there's just so much compelling literature there. And I think that this is really what kind of sets the map during your pregnancy, your own emotional state of wellness and balance and how babe is hardwired, if you will, when they come into their world. And that plays a huge role mm -hmm. in growth, development, fear, rage, anxiety, and so much more. Yep. And like not having my common clear in the mix, I think has also been part of. <laughs> damn ashwagandha in there. I, I know. know. I know. Yes. But I have been doing L-theanine supplementally just on its own. <laughs> yeah. 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 And have you done any Gabacalm in this process? I have. That day um, for sure, That right? day I definitely, I was like, I'm literally going to lay down because I was also worried, like, I'm a new mama. It's early on. Like She fell on I her fell tailbone. on my butt, like, pretty hard. It didn't hit my belly or anything, but, you know, like, I'm literally going to, like, lay down, put my feet up, and Byron, bring me the Gabacalm. I took it that day, um, and I keep it on my desk, you know, while I'm working. I don't really need it all that often, honestly. I've been doing probably more proactive CBD, if anything. Okay. And that's, again, where both of those, um, you know, we, we've personally weighed out that cost mm -hmm. of benefit of like, again, what's the impact of the corticosteroid response to baby crossing the placenta versus me chilling myself out exactly. and something that I feel is biologically produced by the body, both in the sense of GABA, which our GABA calm is, you know, bioidentical and CBD, which the body makes um, cannabidiol as well. Um, and that's high in breast milk and such. So I don't think that these are foreign substrates and I don't clinically see a concern with those needed, especially if you're on the brink of choosing between a pharmacological intervention exactly. of an anti-anxiety drug or those that have known harmful side effects. So I think that that's something to definitely weigh out. Exactly. Even if there's not like the 100% stamp of approval and, and quite frankly, a lot of natural compounds are not going to have that just and let's be freaking honest, a Pop-Tart doesn't have a damn stamp of approval, but exactly. you might be putting it in your face. So that red 40 and no, for real, yep. 
Those things are not warranted as safe or needed for babes' development. So you just have to weigh out everything that you do and make your own personal choices that feel right in your belly and your space. Exactly. All right. So let's just rapid fire some interventions and sure. tools yeah, for mamas. Yeah, that was supposed to be part of rapid fire. That might have <laughs> that a need. No, it was just a fun story and thought yep. process. Yep. Uh, so uh, let's talk constipation, heartburn relief, because mm-hmm. um, those have been fun delights as the uterus grows and pushes on the colon and then babies now breached, pushing up at your diaphragm. Yep. Um, so what have been go-tos there? Um, so the relax and regulate has been a constant since the beginning. I mean, I just since don't, before I, the I beginning. don't miss a day for at least like five years. Um, but that is when, especially like toward tail end of second trimester, I have noticed a little bit more constipation. And like Allie said, I think that's just, you know, there's less room for all of uh, the organs. Plus there's a hormonal impact that can slow down digestive process as well. Um, so relax and regulate. I've been you know, I was probably between one to two scoops first trimester and then second trimester I've increased to like two and a half, sometimes even three if I really need to get things going. Um, and then maybe twice a week I've been mixing in some mag citrate. Um, so that's one we've talked about, you know, not recommended for daily use. That would be what's in like the natural calm. Um, but it does function as a stool softener and I figure cost benefit of avoiding hemorrhoids, which I've heard a lot about in pregnancy. Luckily I haven't gotten them yet. Um, is, is in favor of, of use of that like a couple times a week. And I'm only using like maybe a half of a teaspoon of, of a powder that I'll link in the show notes. Um, so those two together, and then I've been really on top of my probiotics every night. So still taking the, um, targeted strength as well as the rebuild spectrum probiotic every single night. So that really helps with the bowel regularity. Um, and then one tool I haven't used yet, but I was kind of starting to think I should probably make a batch, um, would be that coconut oil constipation puree that we have that has oh, totally. either prunes or, or apricots. So I have used prunes like when I was traveling and stuck somewhere early on and I was constipated, but honestly being home and like in kind of a, a rhythm has really helped it not to be as bad as I think it could be. But that is like magic. Um, it works really mm-hmm. well for kiddos, the coconut oil constipation puree, I think is what it's called on the blog. So we'll be sure to link that in the show notes. And then for the heartburn and reflux, because we see that dilation of the esophageal sphincter with the increase of progesterone, and then also that compaction of pressure, again, kind of creating that impact, uh, digestate is a really good tool, I would say, to go for. You know, So the digestate has those pancreatic enzymes as well as the ox bile to aid with emulsification the hydrochloric acid to optimize stomach pH, um, as well as the DPP-4, which makes gluten and dairy less inflammatory. So if you were having that as a um, you know unknown ingredient or as a selected indulgence, it's going to reduce the inflammatory impact of those compounds. So that's a really fantastic tool to use, especially if like dining out and having a large or heavy meal or, you know, a known irritant, definitely a good thing to go for. Yep. I've started just incorporating that in at least lunch and dinner. It's always been there whenever I'm dining out. Um, but I'm finding, you know, spicier foods are causing like a little bit of reflux, really nothing that's been too bad or, or unbearable yet, but I know as things move further up and compress, that could be more of a concern. 
Yes. Awesome. So I think we've covered a lot in today's episode. Uh, We hope that this is a helpful resource for you. Again, in probably 10 episodes or so, we'll be rounding out with Becky's third trimester and (laughs) birth plan and all the things. So stay tuned for that. And um, we will catch you next week. Thanks for listening. If you loved today's episode, taking a time to go over to iTunes or Spotify and putting a five-star review would be awesome and appreciated. And if you have a copy of either the Anti-Anxiety Diet or the Anti-Anxiety Diet Cookbook, the same goes for Amazon. That's really a great way to maintain support on the algorithm so that people in the internet space know that we are here, we are relevant, and we are passionate about helping everyone with our food as medicine message. So thanks for listening. Catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans. Connect with Allie and Becky at AllieMillerRD on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, stay nourished and be well.